We would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land and pay our respect to elders past, present and emerging. Our podcast is recorded all over Australia and so we take this opportunity to ask people to reflect on the country they live on and the special places they value. It's impossible to say definitively that climate change caused a particular extreme weather event. It is impossible to attribute climate as the cause of death of any individual. And yet, the school strikers know it, the adults know it, and even the public health scientists will confirm it. Under their breath, there is no doubt the climate body count has begun. Yes, welcome to the DEA podcast, the Doctors for the Environment Australia podcast, where we talk about the sometimes frightening association between the environment and health. Today, we are going to be talking about Body Count, a book about climate change and the cost on human lives. It's not just about statistics, but actual real humans here in Australia. And today we're really excited that we're going to be able to talk to the author of the book, Paddy Manning, who is a freelance journalist who is widely published in Australian newspapers and magazines, and he has authored three books prior to Body Count, including on politics and coal seam gas. Excellent. I am actually very excited, but um, Me too. <laughs> first, we'll be, we'll be back after the break to talk to Paddy, but first I just wanted to see how you're going. Oh, I'm going good. I, I've just, as I was saying before, I've just finished the audiobook of Body Count um, in the minutes leading up to recording this podcast, and it was very gripping. Um, and I was in the emergency department today, and every patient interaction I had, I was thinking in the back of my mind, I wonder what environmental factors could have impacted this presentation. Um, so that's been really cool. And also talking to a lot of people at work because I've been really excited listening to the book on my breaks and then coming back in and wanting to chat about climate change to everyone. Yeah. I had the same thing too. So I actually read it when I was, I took like a little mini holiday over a weekend. Like, you know how sometimes you have weekends and you go away and it feels like a proper holiday, even though it was only oh, yeah. two days. Yeah. Yeah. So I went to um, Eden, like right down south in New South Wales on the beach. And I oh, read yeah. the book while I was there and it was just so good. And I just couldn't Beautiful. put it down. And it was gorgeous. Mm, yeah. Really, really good. Um, the book Body Count um, links climate change and health in a really personal way. Um, and it's something I've been thinking about a lot. And I was wondering, Karen, have you ever had a patient where you've thought or even told them that climate change was a factor in their illness? I definitely have never told a patient that their presentation was from climate change. But I think I've prob- I've had that thought like – I've definitely had patients coming in with like heat stroke or even I've seen like some cases that I thought were a bit extreme, like young people getting rhabdo working outside mm. on really hot days. Mm. And I've had that thought. I was like, this is weird. Like, why would you be getting heat stroke or rhabdo in what would it have been like, you know, September or, you know, when not in the middle yeah. of summer. Yeah. I remember thinking like, oh, this is a bit odd. Maybe it's because of the you know, unseasonably hot weather. Um, mm. But I don't think I've – I I haven't had that light bulb moment. Uh, I wonder um, 
like in the book, there's that story about Kim Lu, and it's almost like she had this light bulb moment when she had a patient who, um, a long-term patient of hers who passed away after going outside on a really hot day. And she wrote Mm. on his death certificate that um, heat was one of the contributions. And from the way it's told in the book, the way that Patty described talking to her about it, it's like for her, that was a really a major moment where she connected Mm. one patient to climate change. What about you? I have never told a patient that I thought their presentation was due to climate change. I think, I guess I think in the, I haven't ever worked in the emergency department during summer either. So I'm wondering this year when I will be, if it, if it might be a bit different seeing people come in when it's really hot and knowing that we're probably going to have fires and seeing people with smoke inhalation or that have been exercising outside or asthma exacerbations, COPD exacerbations, I wonder whether it'll be something that's more on my mind and how I would bring it up with someone and whether it would be valuable to bring it up with someone. Absolutely. Like how how do you bring it into the conversation and, and what's mm. – is it about raising awareness or is it about keeping them safe? Um, so that they're more aware of what their environmental triggers are. Yeah, I guess a bit of both. Like with heat, it's you can talk about how the climate is changing and we can expect we're going to have more and more hot days. And so some really important things to look out for and steps you can take yourself are X, Y, and Z. Yeah, I guess that maybe that would be the frame. It's good to talk it through, you know? Good to talk it through. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I guess so. Um, sense to me. <laughs> I mean, a long time ago, um, I remember in one of our meetings or conference, we were talking about like, how do you bring up green prescribing with patients or how do you bring up active transport? Like it's one of the Mm. ways that you could bring climate change into it. Mm. Um, So you could be like, um, if you're trying to do weight loss counselling with a patient, sometimes it's more effective if they have additional goals and additional kind of motivators. So you can Mm. suggest, oh, if you walk to the bus, you're not only – um, getting your exercise in, but you're also reducing your carbon emissions. Yeah. And it's one way that you could drop that into the conversation. Yeah, I do like that. Um, I guess now is a really great point for us to transition into our interview with Paddy Manning, which we are so excited about, um, and talk about his new book, Body Count. This interview is edited for clarity and brevity, although we haven't really achieved the brevity side of things because there was too much interesting stuff to talk about. Catch you on the other side of this introduction. The ring of fire around Sydney is as angry and as frightening as we've seen. 20,000 people are tonight in the path of the mega fire rolling down the Blue Mountains into the town of Lithgow. Just two days into this four-day heatwave, our AMBOs have been inundated. More than 180 people have been treated for heat stress since Monday. Around 100 of them have needed to be hospitalised. The flood now stretches from Toowoomba to the sea. Water has risen into 50 Brisbane suburbs. By tomorrow morning, 20,000 properties will be swamped. 40,000 will have some water damage. There's disappointment in North Queensland's cyclone-ravaged communities after Defence Force personnel pulled out of clean-up operations. State emergency crews are still on the job, but there's a new health threat facing local residents with a serious outbreak of dengue fever in the region. 
Deep in the Gulf of Carpentaria, mangrove forests, which should be the nurseries of top-end fisheries, have turned to dust. Scientists are warning the top end is on the front line of some of the most severe climate changes being faced by Australia. Sea level rise in particular is happening faster there compared to other parts of the continent. They've also found they had underestimated the rate of change, meaning their predictions have been too conservative. I think one of the biggest questions we all have when it comes to climate change is, is there hope? People often ask me, well, what can I do? I'm just one person, how can I make a difference? But if there is one thing that I wish everybody would do, it's talk about it. We are nowhere near a point where we should put our heads in the sand or throw up our hands and feel that there's not something we can do. Absolutely, there are many things we can do and indeed what we do will be the primary determinant of um, what things look like in the future. Alrighty, you are listening to the DEA podcast with Kaya and Karen, and today we are interviewing Paddy Manning. Welcome. Let's get stuck in. Alrighty. Um, my first question for you, Paddy, is as a journalist, how did you get so interested in climate change? Um, sort of a long um, process, really. I, I, um, I was working at the New South Wales Environment Protection Authority as a policy analyst in the 1990s. Mm. Um, I was in, I was, get this, I was a waste policy officer. And um, (laughs) so. (laughs) That sounds like a sexy job title. In the waste management branch of the Environment Mm. Protection Authority. And uh, anyway, I remember distinctly this kind of shiver of excitement that went through the building when, uh, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change came down with its second assessment report in 1995 mm-hmm. and it concluded that on the balance of probabilities, you know, human activity was contributing to climate change and I think it was global warming at that stage. I don't think they'd invented climate change, the term, at that point. Mm. But, I, but it sort of lodged in my brain as, wow, that's actually quite significant isn't it, if you think about it, and then I forgot about it. And then about five years later, I launched a magazine called Ethical Investor, which was all about the sort of triple bottom line. And, you know, by this time I'd sort of decided I wanted to be a journalist and I'd launched this magazine. And uh, and there was a lot of debate about climate change. That was 2000. Uh, there was a lot of debate about climate change uh, in the pages of that magazine as I launched it. Um, and edited it and published it over a period of about two years um, mm. until it went until I went broke, but um, but yeah, so I've sort of had a, a long-standing interest in the in the issue, um, and did most of my writing for a column uh, in the Sydney Morning Herald and the Age um, called uh, GBiz, which was uh, short for <laughs> Green Business. And, uh, yeah, I wrote a hell of a lot because basically what I did was read Climate Code Red in uh, 2008. I don't know if you've read that book. That's by two Australians, David Spratt and Philip Sutton. Mm-hmm. And uh, and it reduced me to tears at that point. I didn't realise how urgent and overwhelming the climate challenge was. Um, but, right. you know, when I did read it, I went, Oh my God, I knew it was important, but I didn't know it was that critical. 
And uh, really, ever since 2008, I've been on a, I've been like a dog with a bone on the issue, and everything I've done has really, one way or the other, come back to uh, as a journalist. Since then, has has pretty much kind of come back to uh, a fundamental interest in what are we going to do about climate change. So, yeah, I've written quite a bit about it uh, yeah. from different perspectives in you know business and political journalism now. Speaking of being brought to tears, I listened to your newest book, Body Count, um, through Audible, and that was a serious tear jerker. <laughs> I was driving in the car crying to some of those stories. Um, why? It's a very focused on health, the book. How did you go from being interested in climate change and action on climate change to then wanting to take more of a health angle? Because I think that... Um in my years as a journalist, uh, it seemed to me that at least up until this Black Saturday bushfire season that we just had, um, whenever there's a natural disaster and there's a loss of life, it's sort of seen as, um, you know, opportunistic or politicising to start talking about climate change at that point. And, um, and so whether it's Black Saturday or, you know, the Queensland floods were the ones that, you know, really grabbed my attention as being climate disasters at the time, but there was an immediate move to kind of, you know, not that it was coordinated or directed by anyone, but but between the, you know, the media and the politicians, there was a kind of agreement, I think, um, tacit agreement that we wouldn't talk too much about climate change, you know, because Mm. that's kind of, um, you know, somehow inappropriate. Anyway... Uh, and then it takes, you know, years later you'll read an article in the back pages of a newspaper that's, you know, referencing some peer-reviewed journal uh, which says that, oh, yeah, that event really was attributable to global warming, um, you know, to a certain degree or it was made more severe by warming or it was made more likely by warming. And mm. um, and yet I think that, well, no one ever circles back to those um, victims and says, do you realise that, that that event that, mm. you know, cost you, uh, you know, the life of your mother, sister, father, wife, husband, child, um, do you realise that that was linked to global warming? And so I just wanted to, and so the consequence is, you know, I think the climate debate has got lost in, um, you know, kind of factoids about, you know, um, parts per million CO2 in the atmosphere and, you know, a couple of degrees warming and, um, you know, percent emissions reduction by, you know, X date and, uh, you know, impact on electricity bills. Um, but um, these things are all kind of, that. that's not the heart of the issue. You know, we, we end up talking about climate change as though it's, a, you know, something for future generations to deal with or it's an environment issue when actually climate change is having a direct bearing on our health um, right now mm. and the health of our loved ones in our community. So I wanted to cut through all of that and um, talk about climate change in, the, in terms that, um, you know, has a real emotional impact. And I thought that the best way to do that was to talk to those Australians who've lost the most to climate change by mm. talking to them about, you know, how they lost immediate family uh, and, and what are their thoughts about climate change and the link between the death of their loved one and, and warming? Yeah, it was definitely, definitely a novel approach. I haven't read anything similar to that before. 
Um, just for our listeners, I thought um, throughout the book, it's very nuanced um, the way that you deal with the issue of causality. Um, and from the discussions we're having today, that might get missed. But I thought that it was really well dealt with um, the issue about whether you can actually draw causality between an event and an individual person. Um, so I definitely recommend people reading that to, to get that argument. Um, I was wondering, obviously you wanted to go in and look at the personal stories. Did you have a preconceived notion of what you might discover? I did have a preconceived notion, which was that if I talk to those Australians who've lost the most of climate change, they will have an important message, mm. um, which is, you know, I imagined would be along the lines of, um, climate change is terrible. Look what it did to my family, or look what it did to me, or my or my loved one. And we really need to get to, you know, get out, get it, get our act together, and do something to fix it. And of course, that's not what I found at all. Uh, did you think that um your your book was going to miss the point when you were doing all those interviews? Uh no, because I've have because what I did when I did the interviews, of course, I was struck myself emotionally you know so um so after I'd spoken to a few people I realized first of all I mean very early on uh from the very first interview I did with a a bereaved um daughter who lost her dad in a heat wave uh in western Sydney uh she said to me look I don't know what um killed you know I don't know there are a lot of things that killed my dad you know he had he was diabetic he'd already had a heart bypass uh he was over 80 uh it was a hot day he disobeyed doctor's orders and went out in the heat on his mobility scooter on a 20 minute round trip to bunnings you know after having a beer so he he shouldn't have done that um and that no doubt contributed um to his death uh but but um but what she said is uh you know, and I can go more into that story um, because it's an interesting story in my mind. But, but what she said is, I don't know whether it's linked to climate change or not. She's not a climate activist, but she says I do want to get the word out. Look after your old folks in the heat, and um, and that's an important message in itself. Uh, and and I so I thought, okay, well this is going to be interesting. I'm not going to get even amongst this mm. small random sample of Australians who've lost loved ones to climate change, I'm going to get the same mix of disagree of you know diversity of opinion as you get in the broader community. Uh, but their stories are worth telling, regardless, you know. Uh, and I think it gives the book more power that they are strong, st- uh, true stories. They're strong in terms of their emotional impact. But once you put them all together. They have, it's sort of, it adds something. It's more than the sum of its parts to see the context for all of these people individually kind of scratching their heads and trying to work out, well, geez, which it does seem to be, you know, we do seem to be suffering more heat waves in Western Sydney. You know, it does seem to be, um, you know, every other year that's a scorcher now, you know, uh, mm. and, and, you know, you've got a doctor who treated that guy. Um, his name was Chuck McLeod. Uh, and the doctor, who's a member of Doctors for the Environment Australia, Kim Liu, um, writes heat on the birth certificate for the fir- on the death certificate for the first time. So, uh, I think that's an interesting story. Did climate change kill Chuck McLeod? 
who can say? But I, I tell you what, I did do the research to find out that it was definitely a heat wave that day. It was a proper heat wave that m- matches the definition of a heat wave. And, um, mm. and it is certainly the, the case that rising temperatures, if there's one extreme weather event that is, that is most causally linked to global warming, it's hot, hotter temperatures, you know. Uh, so, um, so uh, I, I thought, you know, I said at the beginning, and Karen, I appreciate you saying it's a nuanced argument around causality. I said at the beginning of the book that I was seeking relevance, not proof. I'm never going to be able to prove that climate change killed any particular person just the same way you can't prove that climate change caused an extreme weather event. But you can say that it was made more likely or made more severe, and in some cases you can say exactly by how much. And you can uh, also, you know, come to a similar kind of calculation around the number of excess deaths, for example, that a, that an extreme weather event might cause. So, um, so yeah, I, I thought that the project was worth persevering with, and uh, apart from anything else, it was a kind of intellectual journey, I suppose. I was curious to see what I would find if I turn up to King Lake or turn up to Grantham or turn up to Townsville or turn up to Launceston and try and find the um, bereaved family members who'd lost who'd lost their loved ones in you know extreme weather events that we all have heard about, uh, but perhaps have not been discussed in 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 the terms that I wanted to talk about them here. That's right. Well, Patty, Patty, I definitely don't think that you missed the point. Um, I actually found it really interesting. Like it showed the huge array of different opinions that people have about climate change. And then actually when Kaya and I were discussing it, we realized um, we also as doctors, even though um, we're in Doctors for the Environment, haven't spent that much time individually thinking about each of our patients that we've seen who may have been impacted by climate change. Um, so it made us reflect on our own kind of cognitive processes. Um, and definitely Kaya was saying she's more aware of it now in the ED. She's thinking every time someone comes in, is this related to climate change? Um, so I hope this, our listeners feel the same way. They start realizing that we need to start drawing more connections. Um, there was some really interesting discussion too about some of the reasons why you thought that people didn't necessarily attribute climate change um, to their loved ones passing. Do you want to talk about that anymore? Well, yeah, it's it's kind of like it's not an area where there's been a lot of research, but I um, was talking in, you know, I talked to uh, an expert, Rebecca Huntley, who's just put out her own, her own book as well, How to Talk About Climate Change. She studied a lot on how to communicate about climate science and, um, and, uh, including going over to Yale University and, you know, I mean, her b- books is is worth reading and speaks for itself. But what she told me is that um, she would have been astonished if I had, you know, because I did this at the end, I have having done like 15 of these interviews, um, you know, covering all those different health hazards and uh, extreme weather events and so forth. Um, and then I was trying to sum it all up, kind of come to some kind of synthesis, and I interviewed Rebecca Huntley, and she said she would have been astonished if if when I turn up to um, mm. talk to people about this very deeply personal trauma and tragedy that struck them, that they would turn around and then start talking in terms of some geopolitical issue like climate change. Uh, you know, it's a completely different emotional wavelength. And... Um, and 
But she pointed me towards some research which which sort of paradoxically suggests that the more vulnerable or exposed you are to climate change or the risks of climate change, the less likely you are to believe that it's having an impact on your life. And so there was a study that the New South Wales government did uh, which talked um, to, you know, landowners um, on the northern beaches of Sydney um, who were exposed to, you know, erosion and inundation partly as a result of, you know, more, ex- more you know, intense storms, but also partly as a result of sea level rise. And those, prop- those you know, the closer you got to um, those properties that were exposed, the more likely people were to actually be in a kind of denial about it. Um, so surveys suggested that if you put, if you ask whether they believe that climate change is happening, yes. Do they believe that um, their, you know, coastal properties might be um, affected by sea level rise uh, and you know storm surge? Yes. Um, do they believe that their own property will be affected? No, no. So you know, and it's kind of. I think I found a bit of that in some of the case studies where I was talking to people, which was that. Yes, they'd be happy to talk about climate change in the abstract and may be sceptical or may not be. Uh, but but there's a kind of um, reluctance to uh, to say that, you know, their, the death of their loved one was linked to climate change. And in some cases, in the process of interviewing and then going away and then researching and then presenting a, a draft copy of my um, you know, section relevant to them, to them. In some cases, that that kind of changed their thinking. Um, oh, that's interesting. A little bit, you know, uh, and but but almost just about all of them, it was the first time that they'd talked about it um, in those terms. Not not all of them, but but the majority. Uh, they had never thought about it as a climate disaster, either because they were skeptical of climate change or because. Uh, it just literally hadn't occurred to them. They've got a more proximate cause of death in their mind, which is, for example, um, David Tenner, who lost his wife Alison in the Ca- Canberra bushfires. In his mind, um, apart from you know the fact that their home on the western suburbs of Canberra um, was right next to a, a forest plantation, a pine plantation that went up like... Um, you know, instantly as soon as, you know, it was, I mean, the fire was unstoppable once it reached those plantations, literally almost a block from their house. So Mm. it was ferocious. But the real cause of the disaster and his wife's death, um, in David's mind, and the reason was the ACT government's failure to warn, you know, the residents to misadvise them to go back to their homes, um, and and not warn them of the intensity and and you know danger of that fire, and um and he ended up in a class action you know suing uh, the territory government, and so he spent years battling the territory, and you can understand why his focus was not on climate change to you know cause the loss of my wife, but but the uh you know bungling by the territory in response to the fire, um you know so. Uh, there's always there's always kind of multiple causes for any death, um, in a way. If once you really start to pick the story apart, but I wanted to, 
leave all of those wrinkles in there, not iron them out, not beat it up or down, just mm. tell each story straight. And uh, so hopefully that's what I've done. Mm. There's also there's a chapter called Hope in the book um, and you sort of question whether Australia should be doing a better job at informing its residents about the risks of climate change. What do you think that would look like to you if Australia was to do a better job? I think it would be like the Grim Reaper campaign against, you know, for, in favour <laughs> of um, safe sex, you know, during the HIV AIDS pandemic yep. when that first struck in the 80s. You know, that mm. was Australia uh, world-leading um, public health campaign that successfully responded to this ar- arrival of this virus that had no cure. So, um, so, uh, and it got a, it got across some very strong, powerful me- messages. Wear a condom. Uh, this is not only for gay men. This disease is, could take out anyone. And those messages, if you're old enough and saw the ads, uh, they're still in my brain. Uh, Thirty years later, um, and mm. and you know. Or, you know, fast forward, what about plain packaging laws on um, cigarettes? You know, another world-beating public health initiative by Australians. Uh, Mm. And, uh, you know, you can easily imagine comparable kind of warnings on, you know, fossil fuel-powered electricity uh, suppliers or... Mm. Liquid fuels, you know, you can easily imagine some warnings to say, this causes climate change. Climate change is a is a danger to your health. You know, something mm. like that. It's like it's like food labeling. You imagine know, imagine seeing it at the petrol station. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> if you've got if you've got um, an alternative electric power point that you can refuel, re, recharge your batteries with, and you've got a liquid fuel which causes climate change. Uh, which has got a big black label on it, which says this causes climate change. I think that would drive a fair bit of behaviour, you know, so mm. uh, by consumers. And so I think, you know, I was hoping it was, I mean, the chapter titled Hope, I, I actually don't have a lot of hope, uh, to be honest, that the government is going to, this government at a national level is going to do anything about climate change actually at all. But I do have mm. hope you know, that Australia, well, Australia has a good track record on public health. We've just seen that with this pandemic. Uh, We have a strong public health system. We have an educated population. We have, um, uh, you know, a willingness to act together to to tackle a problem like um, COVID. Uh, And I don't see any reason why, in theory, Australia couldn't do that on climate change and the health risks of climate change. And we've seen actions at some state and territory levels that are very promising. Yes, that's right. And so you have got, and you have to say, um, they are mainly Labor states, the states that really kind of have taken the, you know, grabbed the bull by the horns, if you like. Um, Queensland has done it. Queensland is a state that's highly vulnerable to warming. Uh, you know, Brisbane is one of the cities most vul- of the of the major capitals, most vulnerable and then you've got a whole bunch of tropical diseases that, you know, Queensland is is more exposed to, you know, potentially including, you know, like dengue and a whole bunch of things. Um, but then you've also got, uh, yeah, you've got the Victorian government recently. I mean, they have had the most heatwave deaths, um, you know, partly due to the extreme weather, you know, on uh, Black Saturday in 2009, uh, where hundreds of people were estimated to have died that one day alone. 
Uh, sorry, in the days leading up to Black Saturday. Uh, mm. um, but, uh, yeah, also WA has just held a uh, year-long inquiry um, by the former Chief Health Officer over there, Taran Wiramanthri, uh, who is about to, who, well, has delivered his report and that report, the government will respond to that soon. But they've done a year-long inquiry into the health risks of climate change. And that report's not out yet, is no, it? No, it's not out yet. It'll be out, you know, sort of soon. Uh, but yeah, there is action <laughs> happening at state and territory level. And I think that just highlights that the federal government's inaction is, a, is um, it's a glaring omission. It is. There's a um, also an interesting uh, story you give about an organisation that's doing some local action. Do you want to talk about that, about the Red Cross in Adelaide, I think it is? Oh, yeah, yeah. They were looking at heat death. So Adelaide is also, like Melbourne, has got a, a history of, in fact, I think per capita, their, their per capita death rate uh, is the highest in the country uh, over a very long period. So, um, so. You know, heat wave deaths are nothing new. There are hundreds of people that died in a heat wave in 1908. Uh, but, uh, and in fact, the, the, if you look at the, over the long run, the death rate per capita has come down over a period of more than a century because we've got smarter at forecasting this, whether we've got air conditioning, we don't wear, you know, three piece suits in the, in the, um, yeah, blazing sun. Um, and so, you know, our, de- our our death rate has, you know, notionally come down. There's a caveat, though, uh, that the most heat deaths are not recorded. They're recorded as heart attack or stroke or some other thing. But that's why Kim Liu's action that day with Chuck McLeod to write down that his death was due to a heart attack slash heat uh, was so significant. Uh, and, you know, some doctors are actually calling for, death, you know, environmental factors to be included on death certificates, uh, including, you know, uh, there was a recent kind of debate about whether we should have climate change on death certificates, which is an interesting kind of sideline, uh, but mm. uh, quite serious actually. But, uh, but yeah, the, what the Red Cross is doing down in South Australia is trialling, you know, there have been attempts to um, forecast, uh, you know, given we know when the hot days are coming, uh, to forecast where, um, w- which parts of, the which parts of the community are going to be most vulnerable you know that's got to take into account not just you know the temperature uh but also uh levels of education you know second language um you know a whole bunch of you know poverty a whole bunch of um different kind of demographic or or social data if you like as well as just understanding what's happening with the weather uh yeah and they're trialing uh, the Red Cross has also got a uh, phone banking system so that they're ringing people, you know, that they know are vulnerable to say, are you okay? Is the air conditioning on? You know, and they can tell, you know, I was interviewing uh, Red, Red Cross, one of the directors of the Red Cross, who was, who was saying, you can tell a lot from the way someone's sounding on the phone as to whether or not mm. they're suffering heat stress. Yeah, so getting getting a bit proactive about identifying the most vulnerable members of the community and and actually calling them and if necessary going and seeing them. Yeah, that's a there is a lot of things we can do, and that's one of the points of the book is to say, yeah, we're not bunnies in the headlights here. We've got to. There's a lot of things we can do to manage these risks, but first we've got to acknowledge them and and talk about them. Mm, yeah, that's right. There's other um, initiatives too. There's a program called Health Pathways that a lot of GPs use, and that can have inbuilt public health messaging too about heat waves. 
so GPs can be aware when their vulnerable patients might be at risk. Yeah, right. But um, I don't imagine that many GPs have got time to be proactively calling. Probably not. <laughs> yeah, I was I was also wondering while we're talking about um, climate change and making it something that we talk about more openly in society, do you, there's a pretty glaring omission in the Royal Commissions that they didn't talk about climate change as a possible causative factor in some events that have occurred. Do you think that's made a big impact on the public awareness of climate change? Well, I think um, certainly, for example, I mean, the biggest, the worst climate disaster still um, in terms of loss of life was Black Saturday. And uh, and it's a classic example of, in Victoria, they called it the Royal Omission uh, <laughs> that was held afterwards because because they wouldn't talk about climate change and funnily enough the commissioner royal commissioner bernard teague as this you know scott morrison was setting up the current um natural disasters royal commission that's about to report um he went on radio and gave an interview saying uh it's really important that this royal commission this time really does make recommendations around climate change because uh because it wasn't in my terms of reference and we didn't spend much time on it because everyone agreed it was um everyone agreed that the fires were made more likely by climate change and because there was no disagreement we sort of moved on and i thought that was extraordinary mm. admission for him 10 years later to be saying oh yeah we sort of downplayed it because there wasn't enough you know debate and um you know <laughs> talk about that's i mean that's just to me is crazy because you have a you had a public kind of scratching its head at the loss of life and the tragedy on that day, and mm. that was a you know the government should have come out state and federal and said, this is what we scientists tell us, and they did tell the royal commission, scientists tell us that this is exactly what we can expect from climate from uh, global warming if it's allowed to continue, uh, and this is why we need to act, uh, but instead they ran a mile. And um, and the Royal Commission ran a mile, said hardly anything about climate change. Fast forward 10 years, I think this Royal Commission will say something about climate change. Certainly the New South Wales inquiry that's um, just reported into the fires just in that state alone has certainly not shied away from the contribution that climate change has made to, you know, the intensity of the fires um, at all. And, in fact, it's unarguable you know, all the attempts to blame arsonists or blame, you know, greenies and national parks and fuel loads in national mm. parks are all just the, the the New South Wales inquiry has completely dismissed all that and it's put climate change front and centre. And uh, and hopefully the, the national inquiry will do the same thing. It really does need a, a public awareness campaign, it seems to me. It needs government to properly educate people about the risks and that's why mm. i came to the kind of conclusion conclusion one of the takeouts for the book for me was that it's not climate change killing us it's ignorance you know we if we knew about if we were being told about the risks we would do more uh you know and not only that we'd manage them and we'd resource fighting the fires better and we'd resource fighting the flash floods better and we'd we'd prepare our communities you know we'd make invest in resilience and uh and so far none of those things are happening because it's all been hostage to the climate wars <sighs> well said <laughs> 
Ah, oh. so obviously that was one of the aims of your book. Uh, well, it certainly. Um, but my the aim of my book was to go um, and try and. Well, I was going to say go for the jugular, but that's not very apt. I I I, I wanted to. I did want to cut through all of the kind of, um, you know, sort of marginal. Uh, get outside the bubble of the climate policy debate, which um, which has become circular, you know, and ridiculous. So uh, it's become a sport uh, for someone like you know Queensland Senator Matt Canavan, you know, proposing that the federal government wade in and build a new coal fired power station. I mean, this is just lunacy on any mm. economic. Uh, scientific uh, engineering, any basis you care to ima- imagine, it's un- it's unbackable, unbankable, and it's just because they they believe that there's mileage, um, political mileage to be gained, and it doesn't matter to them how crazy it is or whether it's going to you know contribute to you know well whether it's going to do taxpayers their dough for a start. Uh, all they're concerned about is the next election and the one after that. Um, if you're lucky. So I just want to get outside that whole bubble of, you know, this climate policy debate, which seems insoluble because everyone's gaming it, and just talk about the reality of, of assuming that Australia continues to fail to do anything about climate change, you know, which I suppose, you know, the US election will, will be a determinant. You could imagine that if the US re-elects Trump you know, things here will continue or continue to deteriorate. You could imagine that if the US votes in Biden and stays in the Paris Agreement and starts taking climate change seriously again, you could imagine that Australian politics might sort of snap back to some kind of reality. But at the moment, mm. what my, the point for my book was to say, let's assume that the climate change debate continues to go on in its boring way that it always has over the last 10 years. But in the meantime... People are dying. Australians are dying. And I'm going to turn the spotlight off the climate warriors and put the spotlight onto the ordinary Australians who are dying from climate change. And let's talk to them. (laughs) Just give me goosebumps again. (laughs) Thank you. It's just really, yeah. The whole premise of when I was writing that column, GBs, I, I wrote it on the basis that, okay, we all accept that climate change is happening now, and this is between 2009 and 2012. And I said, I'm going to focus, I'm going to write a column every week that sits in the business section that looks at what are the solutions to climate change. We've had enough t- time talking about the science. We all know, we've all seen Inconvenient Truth. We've all read the Stern Report. We all know that the IPCC is not a fraud. Um, and let's just, 97% of scientists agree, let's just get on and talk about what needs doing. Well, how wrong mm. was I? You know, um, absolutely, 10 years later, here we have a carbon price that's been abolished. Uh, We've got a government proposing to fund more fossil fuel power um, with our taxpayers' dollars. Uh, They've done nothing. They've buried um, report after report on the health risks of climate change. They've they've tried to defund, you know, the national NCARF, the Climate Change and uh, Adaptation and Resilience Framework. Uh, They defunded that. Uh, Scott Morrison did that, in fact. Uh, you know, he walks into Parliament with a lump of coal when there's a, you know, absolutely critical um, bushfire disaster going on. Uh, he's absolute, He's hamstrung. I didn't try to make this book the answer to everything, you know. I, all I tried to do is to say, 
geez, we've been talking about climate change for a long time. And geez, you know, do you know for the last, actually, um, I, I've had to come to a landing point on where did the body count start? And I, so I decided after talking to scientists, you, you know, mainly off the record, it was, it was round about the turn of the century. Uh, and, mm. you know, so we've been, we've been having this climate debate for a very long time now. And actually, people have been dying for quite a long time now. And so that, that's what I wanted to focus on. And uh, I haven't got a, you know, I talk about hope that one of the things that I took hope from was the, was the sort of love and courage and um, uh, resilience of the people that I spoke to and the, and the way they, in their stories that they told me, the way they rallied around each other at the at their time of crisis, and the way um, they still obviously you know remember their loved ones, and um, and that's what I took hope from that people will look after each other when they when you know when trouble hits, and uh, and so we're going to need more of that spirit um, because because at this rate. Um, we're not going to solve climate change. It's going to get worse. You know, it's not a new normal. It's like we've got one degree of warming. Soon we're going to have two. Uh, it's only going to get more and more frequent. We've got more pandemics around the corner uh, because, you know, warming and the pandemics are linked. Uh, so uh, what my hope is that we will we will actually, you know, hopefully at some point the penny will drop and the government will act. But in any case, we will look after each other when the, you know, when the, shit hits the fan so to speak yeah i think that's a great thing to hold on to well perhaps that's a good spot to wrap things up patty is there anything else you would like to talk about no i do think that the um medical profession is one of those you know people don't trust journalists so they don't trust politicians but they do trust doctors and doctors and nurses and health professionals generally, um, mm. you know, we've just seen in this pandemic the difference between someone who knows what they're talking about, it's got some expertise, and, a, you know, a populist prime minister or um, politician who's just out there, you know, tub-thumping and so think Donald Trump, think Boris Johnson, you know, Bolsonaro, whoever you like. Um, the, the pandemic has exposed populists for the you know, charlatans they are, and and highlighted the value of expertise and science and and health professionals. You know, we've we've just we've just been on a crash course in um in public health uh, as a community, and so I do I suppose hope that doctors will increasingly speak out and. Um, mm. And you've got a few in Parliament. You know, you've had Karen Phelps, you've had, and they've both, and Helen Haynes has, herself, uh, you know, they have both actually helped me launch this book and endorse the book um, on the cover, um, thankfully. I love them. Uh, but I think there it is a golden thread. You know, the health impacts of climate change is a golden thread to wake people up. And even in the conversations, mm-hmm. I, I mean, I went to a climate emergency summit in, the, in Melbourne just in February, just before pandemic, the pandemic struck, you know, a whole bunch of people from the um, Australian Medical Association, the AMA, got up uh, and said that when they met with politicians, I mean, it's controversial inside the enough inside the AMA, but when they had conversations with their patients or when they met with politicians, they would often be met with this blank reaction, like, "Why weren't we told?" Um, you know, they, mm. people surprised that climate change is a danger to your health. Um, they honestly have not thought about it in those terms. 
And yet once you say that, that's a very powerful switch to turn on. And I do hope that um, coming from the right bodies, I mean, the AMA has recognised the climate emergency itself um, and so have a string of other health-related bodies now uh, and are calling for action, including last week. Uh, so, you know, um, I think there is momentum gathering and I hope that any, you know, health professionals, doctors listening to this um, might be, uh, you know, galvanised uh, even more so to, to get active. Absolutely. That's great. Absolutely. There's another thing. I know we're going to wrap up now, but I'm going to put in the show notes. There's a link. Um, the Global Burden of Disease Study is adding a section on um, climate change and pollution, and that will be a really great study that will reference a lot of the issues that we've talked about in your book as well. So I'm going to put that in the show notes. Fantastic. Thank you. I better say that. Oh, that's a new. That sounds like a new one. <laughs> It, yeah, I, I'm, I don't I think it's coming out next year. Um, okay. And then, sorry, that was my cat. She always <laughs> joins the podcast at some point. Um, also, we're going to put out a call out for our members to um, send us in an email with their own pre-recorded um, story if they've had a patient who they think has been affected by climate change and particularly whether they've all ever discussed with their patient um, how climate change has impacted on their health. So look forward to that as well. Thank you so much. Oh, thank yeah, you thanks so, so much. much. Thank you, Patty Manning, the author of the new book, Body Count, for joining us. It's been a really wonderful conversation. Thank you for having so me. So interesting. Thanks.